0: And welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. I'm Sarah, joined by once again by J.M. and Lydia. How are you two doing today? (laughs)
1: Wonderful.
0: And our guest for today is the wonderful Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst turned political activist whose analysis of the war in Iraq and the CIA's role in the region has made him into the United one of the United States' most prominent anti-war voices. Ray, how are you today?
2: Fine, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for coming. I really want to dig into your uh maybe some of your own personal reflections because we know that what your opinions are about the Iraq and the Middle East around 2003. But how do you look at the Middle East now and through that lens? We see a rebuilding Iraq, and we see a very powerful Iran making um, making a name for itself, for lack of a better phrase. Um, like Iran's new missiles, new weapons capabilities, the expiration of the missile treaty. How is all of this going to change the Middle East from what we knew as the Middle East in 2003, the beginning of our forever wars?
2: Well, Sarah, there are supreme ironies here. Um uh, we launched that operation into Iraq, we and the British, on the false pretenses that they were weapons of mass destruction. And by trying to associate Saddam Hussein uh, with what happened in 9-11, we succeeded with the American people. Uh, they were uh, taken for fools. And the result was a war that was uh, responsible for killing t- hundreds of thousands of Iraqis uh, 4, 400,000, no, four thousand plus U.S. armed forces. But the whole idea, uh, as far as helping Israel was concerned, was sort of achieved in a very myopic way. Saddam Hussein was removed and and killed. Okay, so Saddam Hussein posed no more threat to Israel. But what happened over the next few years? Totally predictable. The Shia Muslims took over that country, very close to Iran now, and you have the Iraqis inviting us to leave three or four years ago. We say, well, actually, we want to hang around for a while. There's still a couple of thousand U.S. troops in uh, in Iraq, uh, and there are a couple of hundred, well, a couple, maybe a couple thousand in Syria as well. What are they doing there? Well, in Syria, they're still in the oil over there in northern Syria. In Iraq, they're just there to protect, protect our, our bases there. Why are our bases there? Well, yeah, that's another story. So the supreme irony here is Iran has grown in strength. It has a very powerful ally, Russia? Right, right there in <laughs> Iraq, right there in Syria. And, you know, Iraq, Iran has empowered Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon and, to a degree, Hamas. And now Israel is really in danger of, um, of being destroyed, really. Uh, we'll have to see how this all comes out. The, uh, the fly in the ointment, of course, has to do with the fact that Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, people know that. Uh, Everybody knows that Uh, if Israel is subjected to the kind of defeat that the Arab nations and Iran supported by China and to a degree by Russia, if Israel suffers that kind of defeat, would they choose the Samson option and pull the temple down on top of all of us? That's a legitimate question. I don't know the answer to it but it's a very, very volatile situation.
0: I think the fact that nobody has an answer to that question about the Samson Doctrine shows the volatility and kind of the, the psychosis of Israel. But since you brought up the bases in Iraq and Syria, it's so funny because everybody always asks me, what's the US doing in Syria? And I say <laughs> stealing oil and doing terrorism, <laughs> I don't know. But um, so Israel has consistently attacked Syria through the last two weeks mostly uh, headaches of uh, damaged runways and of the like. The Iraqi resistance militias have retaliated on their own, striking against these bases in Iraq and Syria. Do you know anything about this resistance militia? Um, what What they're about, where they're from, or anything like that?
2: Well, they're largely Sunni, in my view. They're supported to the degree they need support by Iran and other, others favorable, or, or people favorable to the Sunnis, uh, you know, they have legitimate reason to be up in arms about the U.S. saying no thanks when they were asked to leave by the Iraqi government. And the ones in Syria, of course, are there not at the invitation of the Syrian government. The Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad knows quite well uh, what great lengths the U.S. has gone to uh, using moderate terrorists to try to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. So uh, what are they doing up in northern Syria? Well, it has to do with Kurds up there, but it also has to do with oil. And if you want a really definitive explanation, I mean, I hate to quote Donald Trump, but he said, well, they had to steer the oil, right? <laughs> oh, hello! <laughs> so this, this makes us very popular. Among the Muslim population there and with the Iranians, it's also
0: I love the stealing oil thing because Americans will usually go. It doesn't even matter. We barely steal any. And that's like, yeah, to us. But it's crippling the Syrian economy and keeping it locked down. That's um, right. I, I want to ask. So I asked Scott to ask Scott Ritter and he gave me his opinion. I won't tell you, but I. Um, on the USS Carney, these, these attacks from the Houthis in Yemen, um, we, we know a lot of people in Yemen, we've talked to them multiple times. Nobody in the Yemeni armed forces nor the Houthis have taken credit for any of these alleged attacks on the USS Kearney. Um, we know that the Houthis being the Houthis would be more than happy to take credit for it. But they haven't, and it's been almost a week. So what do you make of the silence on behalf of uh, on the Yemeni side and like really no definitive proof on the United States side? It's kind of terrifying because our Yemeni friends have said, um, we're really scared that it's not true. And they're just kind of using it as an excuse.
2: Well, Sarah, that cannot be excluded, of course. But uh, as far as I know, those rocket attacks were not directed at the USS corny uh, the corny intercepted them, but they are on their way north, like uh, to Israel or thereabouts. The Houthi's are pretty, pretty forward-looking, and they're pretty violent, uh, and they're less. Uh, they feel themselves less vulnerable to the tender administrations of Israel since they're a little bit farther away, right? So uh, my interpretation of that was, yeah, they shot these rockets. I don't know where they thought they would land. They were headed north, and the corny not so much under attack, but saw the opportunity to knock them down and claims that it did knock them down. That's about all I know about that. And I haven't really looked into it as seriously as perhaps Scott has. Yeah, that's true. Scott
0: Scott probably talks about it every day. Um, So now I want to get into the hospital bombing, the church bombing, the bombing, the bombing, the bombing of Gaza. I saw some of your recent interview where you kind of got delved into your theories about the hospital. I was wondering if you would mind going over that for our listeners. Um today the New, York New or it was last night late last night for me, the New York Times came out with an article um that said we're not really sure anymore who bombed <laughs> the hospital, but it doesn't appear to be coming from Gaza, but they will not say where it came from. So what is your theory behind the hospital bombing and and whatnots and what have yous?
2: Well, this sounds sort of trite, but it's the way things work in Washington and New York, specifically the New York Times. Now, the New York Times uh, uncharacteristically jumped right on uh, the Hamas charges that it was Israel that bombed the hospital. Uh they've been sort of trying to back off that now. And even though uh, even though they are talking to intelligence community officials who say no, 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 with was, it was Hamas, even though there is increasingly persuasive evidence that I have seen that that rocket was shot from the Mediterranean Sea, right? From from the from the edge of the of the sea there. Uh, in Hamas territory, the the Enoch Times, even though the incentive would be to blame Hamas, they have to CYA, they have to cover their patooties, right? And so they're saying, well, we can't say yes, we can't say no, because earlier we bought what Hamas said and now it's, real. well, the jury is still out. Uh, but the fact that the Enoch Times is not willing <laughs> to say, oh yeah, the intelligence community says it was Hamas, of course it was Hamas, that's new. And you know, you can explain it by covering your own rear end, but uh, you know, it's still very strange because the New York Times usually marches in lockstep with what people like David Sanger and other people who work part-time for the CIA tend to, to tell the people who read the New York Times.
0: How do you think that it compares to the market bombing of Konstantinovka? I don't know if you recall that bombing in Ukraine that we they blamed on Russia for about two weeks until they finally came out and said, uh, directionally, it looks that it was Ukraine. Do you think that we'll ever get a definitive admission or they'll just kind of let us memory hold this hospital bombing and leave it?
2: Well, you won't let up, Sarah, and those of us who know the real story will keep trying to tell the American people what's really going on. But, you know, most of the American people are so brainwashed. And I use that term advisedly. So brainwashed by what we call the mainstream media that they'll believe anything you tell them. And the mainstream media is totally anti-Russian and pro-Israeli and so that can get us in a heap of trouble. Now, I'll give you, I'll give you one for instance. I'm from the Bronx, and we'll we give you a for instance, right? <laughs> As a for instance. Remember how back in June, July, August 2016, in the midst of the uh, campaign for presidency, where Hillary Clinton was having being nominated in July by the by the Democrats. Well, it was very clear that she had stolen the nomination from Bernie Sanders, who didn't have the courage to stand up and say, Hillary, I've read those emails now, you really did steal the nomination from me, and I'm not going to endorse you. Instead, Bernie, good Democrat that he was, he said, oh, no, we have to throw our support behind Hillary. Now, what happened at that time? At that time, someone gave Julian Assange of WikiLeaks uh, emails from the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, emails that proved that this, the, the dick was so stacked because, uh, against Bernie Sanders, he didn't have a prayer. And it was not only Hillary, it was the whole Democratic National Committee. Whoa, when were those emails published in the right before the Democratic National Convention, the end of July 2016. <clears throat> now, Hillary and the Democrats had ample warning because Julian Assange himself in mid June had said, We have emails pertaining to Hillary Clinton that we're about to publish. Okay. So they knew it was coming. Okay. What was the excuse they gave? What was their very clever, clever stratagem? Well, uh, um, Jacob Sullivan, who was one of Hillary's campaign advisors, said, "I know what we'll do. I know what we'll do. We'll blame when those emails come out. We'll blame it on the Russians." And Hillary said, "Uh, "Well, Jake, uh, it wasn't the Russians. It was, it was WikiLeaks." He that's all right. That's all right. That's No problem. We hate WikiLeaks as much as we <laughs> hate the Russians and vice versa. So, yeah, let's say that the Russians hacked into the Democratic National Committee, okay, stole those emails, gave them to WikiLeaks to make sure that Donald Trump would win. Now, they said that before the election. <laughs> and what happened? Donald Trump won anyway, okay? Hillary... Yeah, Hillary just didn't have a camp- campaign. and you know, it, Anyhow, what happened was this deception took hold. The Russians are responsible for none other than Donald Trump and none other than helping defeat Hillary Clinton. Now, that went into high gear, and Obama knew himself that this was a ruse. He was in on this whole problem, This him on this whole ruse, Together with Joe Biden, who was vice president at the time, they know it was cockamamie, but they ran with it. They thought it would help Hillary win, and after she lost, they knew it would help defeat any attempt Trump would make to make make a decent relationship with Russia. So, what am I saying here? That was 2016. What is it? 2023? 20, Four? About seven years ago. Okay. <laughs> Now, do the American people know that Russia had nothing to do with the fact that Trump won? They had nothing to do with the fact that Hillary lost, that the proof is in the pudding. And when the, the head of the cyber firm, the name of the cyber firm was CrowdStrike, the head was named Sean Henry, who had worked for Bob Mueller, for 10 years as a high-tech guy for the FBI, OK? So when he testified before Congress on the 5th of December, 2017, remember these dates, because they're significant. Uh, he was asked by Adam Schiff, all right, Mr. Henry, so when was it that the Russians hacked into the DNC? And uh, Sean Henry was about to, and then his his, his lawyer pulled him aside and said, well, Oh, oh uh, uh Mr yes. Mr Schiff uh actually uh, uh there's no technical evidence that the Russians hacked into the DNC actually there's no technical evidence that that anyone hacked into the DNC uh, we never saw any any emails leaving the the net so so you know Okay. What's my point here? What did I say? That was December 5th, 2017. Okay. Now Schiff took over that committee and he kept that evidence, that testimony, under lock and key for two and a half years. Okay. And finally, in May of 2000, I'm sorry, May of 2020, um, somebody said, "Hey, President Trump, you know, if you want to, if you want to get that testimony released, um, you, you're the president. Yeah, you, you could get that released. Now, well, how would I do that? Well, uh, have your director of national intelligence tell Schiff, if you don't release that testimony, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> so what happened on the seventh of May, 2020." That information was released. Now, they hid it in a series of 54 other other documents, okay? But it was out there for anybody to see. What did the New York Times do? Or the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. They did a shift on them, okay? They put it down under lock and key. So you do the math. May 7th, 2020. What's today? October 25th, 2023, mind you. If my math is correct, that's over three years that that stuff has been made public but suppressed by by the media. Now, I mean, I wouldn't mention all this stuff. It weren't very consequential because most Americans still believe that the Russians are responsible for Donald Trump. There's a bromance, to use Obama's words, between Trump and Putin, okay? And they're conditioned to believe that Putin is a devil incarnate, and then if we have to do a war against Putin in, oh, well, Ukraine, or maybe maybe in the Middle East or Southwest Asia, as they call it now, well, the Americans will support that because they're brainwashed into thinking the Russians are responsible for all manner of, of evil that they're not responsible for. And just to point that out, just to cite that testimony is news to everyone. And then when they think about it, oh, yeah, prove that. And when I point them, now, get this. When I point them to the House Intelligence Committee website, download it, and they go there and say it's not there.
3: <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> not there?
2: <laughs> no, it was pulled. They put it to a different website, and I can still get it. Okay, but that's that's the extraordinary lates that these clucks have gone to, and you know it wouldn't matter so much were it not for the fact that uh, the American people easily moved uh, to support. Whatever has to be done against those evil Russians, and then the evidence—the evidence evaporates as long as, as soon as you look closely at it, you can't get that from the mainstream media. That's why I'm delighted to go and talk to your audience and try to bring them around to say, "Well, look, you know, it's not the way it seems. Uh, there is documentary evidence showing what went down here. It's just that." You don't know it, and it's not your fault for not knowing it. You got lots of other things to do. You ought to plug in to shows like this and maybe get a little bit educated.
0: That was Tim telling you guys to watch the show every episode. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to delve into this propaganda and first what that you brought up. So, first, I want to bring up Netanyahu and how. Bad he is at using the propaganda. Um, <laughs> Bibi
3: Habibi, bad at propaganda? Never, he's Bibi Habibi.
0: Bibi Habibi. Um, what? So this ground invasion that I'm kind of convinced is not real. Um, so we've had the ground invasion was supposed to happen imminently for about a week. Now it's been delayed. Today we're told that Israel has agreed to delay the invasion until the United States can get into place. Netanyahu said that there's a date but he won't tell us the date. What should we make of all of this? Is it a sign of weakness? Or do they just wanna allow the Palestinians to to starve or, or waste away? Or, or will we actually see a ground invasion? Or is it just more peacocking and posturing by Bibi?
2: Don't cry for me, Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, he's, a, he's between Iraq, and a hard place. And I don't mean Iraq, as in Iran. Uh, He's got a personal stake in this era. Uh, He's going to go to jail if they remove him from power. It's in the courts. So the reason that he has accepted or acquiesced in these very hard right extremists as part of his government is the only way that he can survive, not only politically, but stay out of jail, Okay. Now, what will he do with respect to Gaza? Uh, Part of his motivation will be informed by that consideration. And nobody mentions that, but that's a very real personal stake he has in all this. Now, everybody and his brother, except Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland at State, Uh, wants to have a little pause, wants to have a ceasefire, wants to at least try to get the hostages free uh, before all hell breaks loose in in the Gaza Strip. All hell has already broken loose. Uh, Figures from last night or for the last 24 hours, it's 700 plus Palestinians killed by the Israeli bombing. Will they invade? Well, uh, Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, has, has given them carte blanche to invade. He has said, what was it? Face the nation, I guess, on Sunday. He said, look, um, uh, we're not going to tolerate a pause in the bombing. You know, for, for the hostage or any other reason, no pause in the bombing. We're not, no ceasefire. We don't see any ceasefire. Our focus, his words. Our focus is on helping the Israelis to, to succeed in their military operation, period, end quote. Now, that identifies the United States with Israel, and Israel has been, over the last couple of days, committing genocide. You can call it ethnic cleansing. You can call it collective punishment. Those are bad in and of themselves. themselves. Genocide. genocide. You know, I don't think we want to be associated with genocide. And you know, every now and then you get somebody leaking to the New York Times saying, now we're, we're trying to moderate the Israelis a little bit. Uh, but, you know, they're their own people and they're going to make their own decisions. So, you know, we, we prefer that they not kill quite as many people. But uh, look, there they are. And the White House uh, spokesperson, John Kirby, says, you know, war is awful. War is terrible. <laughs> anyway, he says, you know, this is war. It's mm-hmm. combat. It's bloody. It's ugly. It's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. End quote. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> so just so you understand, that's how messy it's going to be. Genocide sort of like that. Now, there are 2 million, 2.3 million Palestinians, or mostly Palestinians, in Gaza. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Ethnic cleansing or genocide against 2 million? The, well, does it have to be 6 million? Uh, is it only when it gets to be 6 million, as it was uh, during the Nazi Holocaust, that we worry? Or, you know, or, or does it have to, to do? mostly with the Palestinians who don't really look like us. And uh, yeah, well, what is it? Uh, what's the divide between objectionable genocide <laughs> and two million? You know, it just boggles the mind. And the U.S. is isolated on this. I witnessed mm-hmm. the fact five days ago at the UN when the U.S. was the sole veto. Mm-hmm. What was the proposition? A ceasefire, for God's sake. Mm-hmm makes eminent good sense, a ceasefire. And the US had to veto it. Mm -hmm. And what was the count? 12 to 1, 1. two abstentions. Britain and Russia? I mean, the pretense Mm -hmm. that after Ukraine and what's happened in Gaza now, that Russia is sort of isolated? Well, it's not Russia that's isolated. It's the U.S. that's isolated. And you have a very, very untenable s- situation here, Sarah. You have the lily white West embodied in NATO. Look at all those countries. What makes them distinctive? They all look like me. Yeah? <laughs> they're as old as me, but yeah, they're all white. Okay. The Turks may be a blend. Okay. Against the rest of the world, for God's sake. That's not multipolar. That's bipolar in both senses of the word, Okay. Now, what does that mean? That means that the majority of the world, the vast majority, people of color, are up against this uh, kind of residual white hegemony, which is going to kind of fall apart. And under the impact of what's going to happen in Gaza now, I dare say it's going to fall apart even more quickly than people might, might have thought before. Now, a lot is at stake. The last thing I'll say is uh, just as don't what, don't cry, Bibi Netanyahu. Well, don't cry, Joe Biden either. I mean, Joe Biden. Let's face it. To the degree he's compass mentis, he has a lot to worry about. What do I mean? They got the goods on him. I mean, all you have to do is is read what Professor Turley has been writing. You know he he was the the consummate anti-republican during iraq <laughs> and now he's the consummate anti-biden now, why? Because he tells the truth. And what he's saying is they've got the goods on this guy, bribery, all kinds of influence peddling, with his brother and his mother, and so his sisters and his cousins and his aunts, and so his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. You know, anyhow, <laughs> you, you could do a Gilbert or Sullivan on this one, right? So <laughs> he got the goods on Biden. They got the goods on, on, on Hunter. And who else do they have the goods on? How oh, about this guy... Tony Blinken, mm-hmm. what he did—that was—I mean, what he did—is immoral. But was it illegal? Well, there was an election in 2020, actually, and uh, what did he do? Well, it looked like his uh, his guy, Joe Biden, was—it was—you know—very much in, it was undetermined who's going to win. So, what did he do? Well, he said, you know, this this Hunter laptop is a real problem. So I called up his buddy uh, Mikey Morell, who was acting chief for the CIA at one point. Say, Mikey, uh, can you can you throw water on this thing? But can you get a bunch of uh, intelligence managers to come over and say it was a Russian operation, Uh, just like getting Trump into? Can you do? No. How how soon do you need it? Two days, no problem. Mikey Morrell <laughs> goes around, enlists John's, Brennan's PR people. And before you know it, they have 50 plus Mikey, 51. Now, what am I saying? There? Well, it was Blinken that asked Morrell to do that. Did these guys know they were lying? Well, they knew there was no evidence there because the FBI had the computer, for God's sake. And there was <laughs> evidence that this was a Russian... Bore all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence disinformation operation. Was this consequential? Well, here's what happened. Three days later, there's a debate, the last debate between Trump and Biden, and Trump raises this thing about uh, Hunter Biden's laptop and how scurrilous and and how, how how condemning it was, and Joe Biden said, "Oh, Mr. Trump." Don't you know that 50 intelligence managers, including four heads of the CIA, have just said that that bears all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence disinformation operation? Don't you know that at <laughs> So now, did that determine the outcome of the election? I don't know. How, how would you prove something like that? But Blinken was the guy that did that. Now, I don't know if that's illegal or not, but he's gonna be sweating because you know what happens if the other guy wins, you know, if his guy doesn't win. The other guy could be this fellow with the orange hair, right? And is he vindictive? I would think he might be. And so not only will BB end up in jail if he loses, but people like Blinken end up in jail if he loses, together with Hunter and with uh, with Daddy, and not least with jacob sullivan who invented the whole russia Russia gate yep. business about so so all four of those have a personal stake in not losing in ukraine not losing in southwest asia or gaza uh, and so what does that mean that means something extra here that means they have all the more incentive to do crazy things to save their own patooties
0: we're going to get into that even more. But first, I'm going to do a favor for one of our listeners and myself, we want you to watch the Erdogan um, recent statements and get maybe get your reaction on them really interesting because you brought up Turkey, and now interesting, there statements recently. So if we could play that video, please, Uh, This
4: oppression uh, by Israel and uh, acting uh, like a terrorist organization but not like a state is never appreciated by us and will never be appreciated. As of the 7th of uh, October, the state of Israel is indeed carrying out the um, most barbaric uh, attack against the civilians in uh, Gaza. Almost half of the people who lost their lives in Gaza are comprised of children, and the rest is comprised of the elderly and the women. Even this grave uh, picture shows us that it is not a about defending itself, but rather the perpetration of a crime against humanity. So with the fighter jets they are bombing the cities and hospitals and the shrines and the mosques and the bazaars and the uh, houses with their tanks with their weapons and arms they are carrying out this humane attacks i wonder there are any other army or any other uh, state who perpetrates a such kind of crime against humanity? So I would like to call upon the whole world and Israel. So they are conveying meetings, and in the last meeting they have come together. So the whole West identify Hamas as a terrorist organization. So I would like to call upon the whole world. Israel, maybe you are such an organization because the West is indebted to you, but Turkey has no debt towards you at all.
2: I don't know
0: if you've you've seen it already, but quite strong words coming from Turkey and maybe a little ironic as well. But... but, um, what do you make of it? Is this their are they using uh Gaza as a way to kind of um stick it in the face of the West? Or do you think that they that Erdogan is being authentic or what because I, I get confused because Turkey's such a an oddball always? It's like a wild card whenever things because of their geopolitical stances and location, them being at a pivot point, but their interests in Syria don't Coincide with a defeated Israel, um, their interests in the greater or the Pan Ottoman Empire or the resurgence of the Ottoman Empire don't align with uh, with an uh, with an Israel defeat. So what do what do you make of this?
2: Well, Sarah, I, I think Erdogan is trying to don the, the mantle of uh, the head of the Muslim oppressed peoples here uh as you have pointed out he's pretty strong on his rhetoric and he's a little bit uh, wishy-washy when it comes to action but but this time he's joined by the iranians i mean here's the iranian president calling up the head of saudi arabia huh <laughs> it's a week ago Calling up the head of Saudi Arabia, said, "What are we to do about this this terrible stuff that the Israeli retaliating uh, in Giza? Uh, this we have the Arab ambassadors in Beijing asking uh, the Chinese foreign minister, would you convene us and, and so we can get our heads together and get the, get our heads around this thing because this is really very serious. What's what's about to go? What's happening?' So the question is." Uh, What will happen, what will happen if the Israelis do mount their ground offensive? It looks like it's some time in coming, but let's say they do try to go into Gaza with their tanks, okay? Well, will Hezbollah come in from the north, from Lebanon? Will they stir up a a real armed uprising? And if they do, will jets from the USS Gerald Ford try to interdict those? Will the U.S. get involved militarily? And if so, will the Iranians sit still? Uh, Will the others who have military potential in these areas sit still? Will the terrorists in Iraq and and elsewhere, Syria, will they hit out against U.S. bases still there, uninvited, unwelcome? Or worse still from a domestic point of view, uh, well, the kind of people that did 9-11, will they be motivated to do more such 9-11s because of, as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed put it, he was the mastermind behind 9-11, uh, because of their deep hatred for one-sided U.S. support to everything Israel does. So terrorism, you ain't seen nothing yet. If the Israelis persist in going into Gaza, trying to clean it out, uh, my guess is they're trying to drive all those people into Egypt, into the Sinai. There's even a plan that has now been divulged, give them housing in, in, in Egypt and get rid of them and and uh, develop a really nice uh, a beachfront there in Gaza for Israeli settlers. I mean, if it comes to that, this time, the correlation of forces which you know used to be sort of like this is bent and when i say bent i mean bent in favor of those who uh, identify with the palestinians and as i say you have china involved now for god's sake not only china saudi arabia iran syria iraq you know jordan even the king of jordan was unwilling to see president biden when it came uh, that way. So uh, the shift uh, in the correlation in force is really important. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. We,
1: we actually wanted to talk to you about something that we discussed on our team today. So we want you to be a part of this conversation with us. Obviously, we are people who post news every day, 24-7, and we analyze things. And one who has been following the russia-ukraine conflict for almost two years now can't help but notice some of the let's say similarities in in the coverage that you see in the media of this conflict that we're currently witnessing uh for example something that we discussed that it seems like the propaganda is using a lot of the same tropes we have the the babies you know that story that that was a big thing um, we have the supposed messages from the terrorists as they called them uh, admitting their guilt for the for the strike so what's interesting is things like this uh, they kind of make people more suspicious in a way because they start seeing patterns. And what is something that we actually discussed before the, the live stream started is that it, it feels like it took people a lot longer to start seeing through the narratives in the Russia-Ukraine conflict than through the narratives in this one because people look at the patterns. So we wanted to ask your opinion, Do you agree that there are certain patterns? And do you think that it might be because the same people might be behind those narratives?
2: Oh, well, it is the same people, uh, at least if you're talking about the uh, mainstream media in the West, in the U.S., Britain, and Europe as well. Um, You know, they buy the official line and they're controlled by the same people who make a lot of money out of producing and selling arms. I mean, you can't neglect that aspect of it. You know, Eisenhower, um, he warned right before he left office about the existence of the military industrial complex. He warned that they had gained more power than ever before in the history of our country, and that they would continue to uh, accrete more power and that the only the only antidote to that would be a well-informed citizenry. <laughs> now, now, there is no well-informed citizenry, at least not in the United States. So that's where there's a premium on alternative media. And I think, Lydia, you're right in suggesting that this is new, that people do know where to go for alternative views if they have the time if they have the inclination now the time a lot of people have two jobs they come home they put their feet up and feed the kids and then watch fox news for god's sake you know to be entertained so so that's not that's not really very helpful and and the the incentive well most americans still are very reluctant to believe the worst about our our support for things like. Well, let's call it genocide. That's what's going on in Gaza right now. Okay, so they're predisposed not to not to believe that, but just sort of screen it out that this is uh, Palestinian or Arab or Muslim propaganda. So we're up against it. The good news is that, as Julian Assange sort of instituted, there is a fifth estate. The fourth estate is moribund. Okay, but the fifth estate. Well, they're trying to suppress it, but they can't really. And so, I don't know, maybe people are hearing us today. That's good, okay? People can get educated. The, the, the trick is to, not the trick, the challenge is to get before people who are, are really interested but don't have time and don't have inclination to hear the truth. And that's a, that's a high bar. That's a, a, a big challenge for the rest of us. I'm not sure I handled your question very well, Lydia. But you feel free to, to follow up.
0: I do. I want to expand on Lydia's question. So I know you don't Twitter a lot, but and I don't blame you <laughs> at all. But but it's the Twitter landscape. So we know that people are starting to kind of shy away from mainstream media because of all of the things you previously discussed—the Russia lies, the lies from Ukraine, like like Lydia mentioned. But now we have these huge, and I don't want to call them bot farms because they're not even bots. They're real people, but that are on Twitter and they're these huge accounts and they're disseminating the information before it's even in the media and then kind of trying to steer the narrative. So, and these are people from like our think tanks. This is going to be a really stupid question, but I want you to answer anyway. <laughs> how, how intertwined are this? this, this Mossad, the Hezbollah, like all of these things are how closely intertwined are they with the CIA and these think tanks? And like there must be money flowing all over the place.
2: Well, there is money flowing all over the place. Uh, The Defense Department budget is uh, example A. Um, You know, with respect to Twitter, uh, my son who runs my website said, Dad, you got to get on Twitter. And so I did, what, seven, eight years ago. And I find that I'm getting 100 new followers every day, <laughs> every day, at Bray McGovern, okay? So uh, what does that mean? Well, I'm up to 47,000 plus. Huh? And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was 44,000 or so. So people know where to look for what I have to say and indeed, I'm really, really encouraged by the fact that 100 people a day, and that's not an exaggeration, look it up, okay? 100 people a day are, are doing are looking at me on Twitter. Uh, I found that, uh, that composing the most eloquent prose in a, a nice uh, page and a half article was, you know, it's good, it's what I used to do, it's what I know how to do, you cite your source and all that stuff. <laughs> people are much more likely to see you on Twitter or on YouTube okay so I've not stopped writing I stopped I stop long enough every two weeks to write something substantive but meanwhile people need to be informed almost well on a daily basis now so so Twitter is an art form that uh, can be abused and and but it seems to me that I've been able to use it uh, to good advantage and i I'm thankful to my my son, who used to always say, look, Dad, don't forget to mention your website, for God's <laughs> sake, you know, raymcgovern.com, okay? And, Dad, look, tell him also, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But I'm far too humble, Sarah, to to repeat that. You just
0: did. You just
2: did. Oh, no. <laughs> your
0: son must be proud. He's your best marketing agent. He's he's <laughs> propagandizing you too. So um, and then now with that, so I saw a tweet. It wasn't you, but it actually made me think of you because you're an anti war um speaker. But it was somebody wrote a tweet that said it was another anti war account and it's escaping me right now. Um, it said, thanks for joining us, the anti or The the anti-war right, it was nice knowing you while it lasted because our right wingers have gone from no more money to Ukraine. This is a waste to now let's bomb all of Gaza and (laughs) expand Israel throughout the entire region. Um, That's why I asked about the kind of think tank people being in bed with Israel.
2: Yeah. Sarah, let me add a little vignette here, which uh, (laughs) which was important to me when I reflected on it. The first time uh, I met Julian Assange uh, in person, it was at the Ecuadorian Embassy in London about twelve years ago now. And uh, a couple of my colleagues, uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, were in the anteroom. There's some small little waiting area. We're having a little wine and cheese, and Julian comes in the door, and I was right next to the door. And so I said Julian, I said Ray McGovern. And he looked at me and says, "I know." <laughs> and so I said, "Oh, you read my stuff." And he said, "No. <laughs> I see you on YouTube." Now, Julian was 49 at the time, right? So Is that the sort of borderline between what I consider to be young people and and old people like me? But even he was saying, look, McGovern, write the fanciest prose, the most persuasive essays you can, but I see you on YouTube. Now, (laughs) it took me a couple of years to get that through my craw, but now I'm all over YouTube. Lots of people uh, interview me almost, well, I'm averaging one a day, sometimes two. And uh, to the degree that gets out there, uh, that's good. And added to all that, and this is significant. I was thinking just about a year ago, McGovern, your stich is current intelligence. That's what you did. You were glorified journalists. You had to tell the president every day, six days a week, what was going on, and to the degree you could interpret it like right then, okay? I wish I could do that now. And guess what? Judge Napolitano says, Ray, would you come on my program? (laughs) And so every Monday at 10 o'clock, I open his shows for the week. And every Friday, toward the end of of Friday, I go on what's called a round table with usually with Larry Johnson or some other one of my colleagues for this roundup. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So what am I saying to myself? Well, I'm saying, wow. Now why do I spend all day Sunday getting prepared for questions not only on Russia but on just about anything that not Vice President Bush or President Reagan's going to ask me what Judge Napolitano is going to ask me and I'm not talking one on one anymore which is it's sort of you know negative on one point but on the other point I'm talking to the you know 200,000 uh subscribers to Judge Napolitano House. So in in a word, what I'm doing now is appearing every time people ask me to appear, including right now as we speak, and, and also trying to keep up with things in a way that I was required to do, because, you know, it was quite a task to be prepared to field any question that Bush or Secretary Schultz or Secretary Weinberger or whole series of national security advisors or the vice president would ask me. And I couldn't answer them all, of course. Uh, But if I couldn't answer it, I wouldn't be embarrassed. I'd say, I don't know the answer to that, Mr. So-and-so. But I'll find out for you. How soon do you want to know? And i get that answer to him to the degree we knew what the answer was uh, within that time period. So it's pretty, pretty heady stuff right now. And as long as I'm able to do this and as long as I... (laughs) As my short-term and long-term and medium-term memory stays in in <laughs> better than Biden's, let's do an invidious comparison here. Then I'm you know I'm equipped to do that. I'm energized to do that, and I kind of think that the training and experience I've had at taxpayer expense, it's not only given back now. It's it's performing a service to the degree. I can get some air and some some light and some sound uh, that uh, you know I'm sort of ready for, trained for, and ready to do for as long as I can.
3: I think we wanted to expand on those, um, on that immediate need, on that immediate need that you spoke about to get updated and be online, which is that our producer um, in the background posed a very wonderful question. You talked about how the fourth estate is kind of defunct or moribund, stagnant. It just doesn't play in as a factor. So would you say that, what is the role there for, what is the aim of this so-called open source intelligence accounts, things that we've seen mysteriously start to disappear very shortly after the federal fiscal year is over? Nothing suspicious about that such as UA Weapons Tracker, Oryx, and all these other commentators who are constantly out, um, including some, of course, openly from think uh, think tanks, talking about this and trying to spread the news on social media and having uh, podcasts and portraying themselves as being anti-establishment and hip. What's up with that?
2: You know, I wish I knew... uh as far as open source intelligence is concerned uh, back in the day when we were doing analysis on the soviet union and even russia about 80 percent of the material that we worked with was open source material what the russian leaders said how it differed from day to day and all manner of other public material that was available with some help from the state department that was about 80% of what we relied upon. Now it's 90%. And so, you know, every now and then you can get a satellite photograph or you can get an intercepted message. But almost always, even way back then, that just kind of confirmed what we had already reasoned to. This is what the Russians are up to. This is what the Soviets want to do and so forth. So there was a, a very, very, a very professional outfit at CIA, called the Foreign Broadcast Information Center, okay? Or service, they called it. FBIS, Foreign Broadcast Information Service. I served there for two years as uh, deputy uh, head of analysis, okay? Now, who are they? They were people that worked exclusively with open source material, okay? They had access to some of the classified stuff, but they wrote and they published And they published in a way that was available to everybody, universities, anybody, It was available free for a while. These tomes of daily daily reports, they call them. Now, what happened to them? Well, uh, by virtue of the fact that they were primarily a collection organization, collecting uh, uh, broadcasts, collecting all kinds of things from the ether, and also books and other a collection they came under not the analysis part of the cia but the collection part of the cia okay so what did that mean that meant that the degree that the head of analysis bobby gates in in person would uh, distort the information on russia to say that Gorbachev is just a clever commie He's just like all oh, the rest of them they don't trust them they're not going to ever give up power okay you had this independent unsubservient or unsubordinate <laughs> insubordinate, if you will to Bobby Gates uh, publishing the real stuff okay now i not only headed up or was deputy head of that thing acting head for several months uh, but i fed on them when i was briefing Secretary Schultz, Weinberger, and the rest of them. And I relied on them for unbiased intelligence on Russia. Now, what happened to them? Well, Bobby Gates didn't like that. And he came down really hard on his counterpart who headed the collection of this kind of information. He said, give them to me. <laughs> so they disbanded it. <laughs> God, They disbanded this one independent unit that had multi-years of professionalism. People at it for 30, 40 years since Stalin, for God's sake, and could discern what the Russians were saying and what it meant from day to day. So that's what happened to open sources. Now, that was all because Bobby Gates wanted to make sure that nothing got to President Reagan or President anybody else without his distorting it. Uh, A prime example was this. Uh, the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, prohibited research of the kind that would be testing uh, testing this kind of missilery, right? Okay. So uh, the defense minister, his name was Grechko at the time, he made a speech and he used the Russian word for research. Okay. 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 And Bobby Gates says, oh, they're violating the treaty. They were looking at everybody. <laughs> so... The experts that I was in charge of at the time at this Foreign Broadcast Information Service said, "No, no, that, that word doesn't mean testing. It just means research." Okay, well, that was a big Donnybrook. We got our views in front of very important people, and Bobby Gates got very, very angry with us, and that was the end of the Foreign Broadcast Information Services independent analysis group. Now, I I have another story that's similar, which is even more important. And that is that the CIA used to run something called the National Photographic Interpretation Center, NPIC. Okay, what was that? Well, those are the guys that found the missiles in Cuba. Those are the guys that did cratology. (laughs) They could look at the dimensions of a crate on a a soviet shipment and determine exactly what kind of weapon was in there okay these were really really terrific experts okay so what happens well uh back in the 90s uh when john deutsch was head of the cia on his way he thought to becoming secretary of defense it was all wired his his boss or his patron was going to make it happen. Didn't work out that way. But to ingratiate himself with the Pentagon, what did John Deutsch do? He said, you know, I have this independent uh, National Photographic Interpretation Center, and uh, maybe you'd like to have it. And maybe you'd like to not only run the satellites, but run the interpretation. Uh, to run the analysis of what these images really mean. Would you like that? And the Pentagon oh, So, John Deutsch, on his own initiative, let 800 experienced analysis in photo imagery analysis uh, go to the Pentagon. Now, most refused to go because they knew they would no longer be independent, found jobs elsewhere in CIA. Others were old enough to retire and they quit. What does that mean? Well, that means when the when the ball went up on the flag went up on Iraq, and people were going to say, Well, where are those weapons of mass destruction? Who was doing the analysis of all this imagery? Which would be the main source for finding the weapons of mass destruction, of course. It was the Pentagon. And who was running the Pentagon? Don Rumsfeld. And who was working for Don Rumsfeld in this very important imagery analysis function? A fellow named James Clapper. <laughs> oh God! No, no, no. What was the what was the outcome of this? I had a chance to challenge James Clapper uh, at a Carnegie Center uh, open forum run by Bill Burns of all people. Okay, I said, "Now, uh, James Clapper, you're selling your book or You're pushing your book. I just read it. Okay, and you say in your book that you admit." That the pressure was so much from Vice President Cheney to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that, to to use your words, you found things that weren't really there. Period. End quote. Huh? <laughs> and he said, "Well, well, yeah, I, 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 I acknowledge my responsibility together with all those analysts." So. That's how the intelligence community got so corrupted. You give them the uh, open source analysis, which is uh, unparalleled. University professors will admit that they depended heavily on the analysis group. Okay, And then you give them photo interpretation or imagery, not just photos, imagery interpretation after the satellites do the stuff. And you're not anybody independent on that. You've got the prostitution. You've got the thorough corruption of these two major sources of information, imagery, and open source stuff. And that's uh, easy, easily uh, part and parcel of how the CIA has been thoroughly corrupted in its analysis as well as its operations. And I've been saying for months now that it should be abolished. There's no reason for anyone to pretend that they're doing the, the work that they should be uh, expected to do Witness the fact, and I'll just give you one more, for instance, okay, here's here's the President of the United States two months ago saying, oh, Ukraine, Russia has already lost. Putin has already lost in Ukraine, okay? Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, oh, that's right, Russia has already lost. Not only that, but the inability, the ineffectiveness of the Russian army has been laid bare for the whole world to see. <laughs> what BS? They, is that what they're telling the president? I mean, will they have no consequences for, for telling that BS? Well, they won't. And that's why they have to abolish the whole damn thing. Set up an analysis group, a really independent analysis group. And then if you want to overthrow governments or torture people, put that in the Pentagon where it more properly belongs. It was a... It was a structural fault at the very outset in 1947, 1948, to put the operatives who came home from from doing great work during World War II in with the analysts. The two just cannot exist in the same agency. the The director who's responsible for for both parts of the agency can't be destroying Nord Stream Pipeline Two. And also reporting, well, we don't know who destroyed, <laughs> who, who destroyed the uh, Notre Dame. Like it's really crazy. It's time to deal with it, the more so, since we know who killed John F. Kennedy. And that was the CIA in cooperation with our high military, even portions of the FBI and the Secret Service.
0: I think that you touched on a really good point because people... Um have this very deathly fear of the cia and i'm often like the cia is not really the c the the fbi and the cia are not really the fbi and cia of your dad's time like they're very nespotic and kind of like corrupt now and don't really like function in the way that they um have in the past but you brought it up and i'm going to try to navigate this question without getting us all in trouble so (laughs) we have an abundance of dual citizens throughout our government um dual citizens uh with israel and the united states um it's kind of absurd how many dual citizens we have um in our in our government which is it's just incredible um but i wanted to know you touched on it earlier not only is there this evidence but what Why? We have the evidence of the two UN vetoes over language in the the propositions. One was vetoed because it didn't give Israel's right to self-defense. The other one was vetoed because it didn't condemn Hamas properly. And then the peace talks in Cairo were squashed because they didn't give Israel the right to self-defense. Why are countries... So afraid of Israel, it can't be anti-Semitism anymore. We're we're way past that. You mentioned them having something on Biden, on Blinken, on Al Qaeda is our friend in Syria, Jake Sullivan. (laughs) But why? Like they have a. There, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I would agree. I would say that the United States had a had a decent hold on Israel as a big brother or a father that. The power dynamic has completely shifted in my eyes. And now Israel kind of holds the West hostage. And I just don't know if it, it, it can't be anti Semitism. I don't know if it's the Samson option or if it's, I mean, or if something even deeper and darker than that.
2: Well, Sarah, this is a $64 question. At the top of the State Department has been peopled in recent years by Zionists. I mean, the fact that they're perhaps of Jewish religion or ethnicity doesn't really matter. It's Zionism that's the problem, right? And when you have Tony Blinken going to Israel and saying, now, remember, I'm a Jew. Well, what do I have to do with it? (laughs) You're supposed to be representing the United States of America. You're supposed to be dealing with problems such as they exist in the Middle East, and if you start out saying, "Well, am a true?" Well, you're already saying, "I'm I'm prejudiced, I'm biased, and uh, you know, I have I have reason to be biased because my father-in-law or my stepfather was uh, was had friends in Auschwitz and all that stuff." You know, this really should be beside the point, but all our negotiators over the years all are the, the top of the, the State Department, including guys like John Kerry, and, and they, they've all been very much Zionists, okay? Now, Zionists is a political thing. It's not an ethnic or religious thing. So you're, you're right in saying, well, is this copacetic? No, it's not. And, you know, it's bad enough that we realize that. The rest of the whole world realizes that, okay? And so th- the question is, is... Israel wagging the dog here uh, or woof woof you know 3.8 million 3.8 billion, billion isn't it billion dollars a year go to Israel for their uh, for their arms uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's up we produce ourselves so uh, is this unbiased could we ever pretend once again to be a honest broker well of course not and The big news now, of course, Sarah, is that things have changed. Uh, Witness what Erdogan just said. Um, He's filling his oats. So are the Iranians. And you know, this may not be bluff this time. And I I dare say if uh, if Hezbollah gets involved in the northern part of Israel, threatens Israel, and if uh, Tony Blinken is able to persuade that that fellow, Austin, uh, who's the Secretary of Defense, to send some fighter jets to do battle with Hezbollah or bomb the hell out of southern Lebanon. Well, then, then uh, not only Iran, but, you know, Iran is going to have to make some tough decisions, and it doesn't have to get involved militarily. It can simply say, all right, you guys, uh, you have free reign there in Iraq your free reign in Syria for those recidivists, <laughs> the residual people that the U.S. still has on the ground there, for what purpose other than to be targets? Well, uh, you know, targets, why would you put two, not one, but two large aircraft carrier strike groups, that's what they're called now, in immediate proximity to all this? I mean, would you would you have some hidden desire to have them attacked so that they can retaliate? Uh, are they good targets? Well, you know, when I learned that the USS General, Gerald Ford is more than three soccer fields, not only football field, but soccer field. <laughs> I mean, hello, give me a drone and with one week of training, <laughs> I can hit that target. So. What are they doing there? Do some American leaders really hope that they'll be targeted so they get their war with Iran and maybe even with the arch enemy, Russia? I mean, these guys are unhinged. Yeah. And as I said before, they have personal stakes in all this. Uh, I think we're all at a more dangerous stage now, not only in Gaza, but all in Ukraine as well that uh, U.S. forces get directly involved with Russian forces. God, God help us, Chinese ships are in the Persian Gulf right now. And uh, it would come to a no good end, as the Chinese used to say when they weren't so elegant in their prose.
0: Well, I think that's a very good place to end on, a very bleak note. We've laughed, we've cried, we've sang for Bibi. We've gone we've done everything this episode. I couldn't think of a more well-rounded episode. Lydia, what are your thoughts in closing?
1: Well, as always, it's we're living in very interesting times and as we often say in Russia, it's a, it's a curse to live in interesting times. But here we are. But it's definitely going to be just just like you said. It's it's an interesting place, an interesting atmosphere to navigate. A lot of factors are at play, and for me personally, as someone who writes the news every day, follows the news very uh, very closely every day, it's interesting to see how different countries they kind of step in, and sometimes they do things that you don't expect them to do. And things are shifting every day. Things are very unbalanced, but. It's great that we're able to be here and to provide our perspectives and actually, just like we talked about, to provide something that is different from the mainstream, which we know to put in mile is not always reliable. So we're very grateful that you're able to tell us a lot of very interesting things and we're sure that our listeners enjoyed.
0: And JM?
3: Just uh, grateful to be here.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Ray. We're gonna do it again. Don't worry. Um, and all of Ray's links and ads are in the episode description. Um, join us on Friday for a space with Scott Ritter. This weekend we have an episode with Shay Bose about the Irish perspective on Palestine. And then on Sunday, we have a super top secret app, extra special happy fun time show with Scott Ritter. So thank you guys and thank you, Ray, and everyone enjoy the rest of your Wednesday.
2: Most welcome.